In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. In my early 20s, I discovered that I am a fixer, by which I mean that as soon as I hear about a problem, I want to jump in and fix it right away. That is really helpful when you get a call at 10 o'clock at night that a friend has a dead car battery and needs a jump. It's less helpful, though, when the problem is complex and can't easily be fixed, in which case rushing into fix-it mode, I have learned, can cause just as much damage as the original injury. Broken hearts and emotional wounds aren't simple, and the care of souls is never quick. Sin needs to be more of the slow fix rather than the quick one. There is a quick aspect. The moment you know about your own sin is the moment to turn to God and repent of it, because his mercy is always available right now, and thanks be to God for that. But the perniciousness of sin, the tendency for its tendrils to creep into new corners, into places we never thought it would, means that to rush through reconciliation, to rush into moving on, is a spiritual equivalent of putting Neosporin on a Band-Aid on a deep cut. It's why Lent is a season and not an afternoon. This week we received news about sin that happened in our midst. The end of the investigation, Martin's confession and sentencing is an emotional body blow. You might be feeling anything from grief to relief to shock to disbelief to despondence to all of the above all at once. But I would imagine that the news is hitting each of us pretty hard. Typically when I preach, I like to set up an idea and then talk about how we do it. But this week I want to start by speaking to what we do in a moment like this, then why we do it, and maybe even end with some good news. How should we respond? All Souls has been through 13 months of waiting, and at this point very little has actually been revealed, and I encourage members to take advantage of the meeting with Bishop Minns and Andrea Millard of the Standing Committee on Wednesday to ask questions. But how is a community supposed to respond when sin is made known, when the reality of an offense in your community is laid out in front of you, but we're still stuck with more questions than answers? And the question is, of course, not about sin in the abstract, some sort of theological concept, but it's deeply personal for us. For some, this is sin that affects them very directly, as ones against whom the offense was committed, those in our community who have been waiting a year to have an official word come that their accusations were true. For many, it is deeply wounding to hear that grave sin was committed by someone who we loved, who baptized children, who sat with us at hospital beds and gravesides, who pointed us towards God. How do I respond to the fact that the only priest I've ever worked under, the priest under whose ministry I came to love liturgy and the Anglican way did this? Time and time again, when sin is uncovered and revealed in the Bible, the response is to lament. Lamenting makes space for grief, to hold the things that are too heavy and too much for us to bear, holding them up to God and simply asking him to step in, to lay out our emotions before him in raw honesty. In our Stations of the Cross liturgy, we read from the Book of Lamentations, which reads, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth, let him sit alone in silence when he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. Lamenting gives us the space to be honest with our emotions, even if we feel abandoned. Later in that very chapter, the writer of Lamentation says that God has used his kidneys as the quiver for his arrows. 
The Psalms often ask God, why is he so distant? A modern example that I think of is when the musician Pedro the Lion simply sings, and all the while the good Lord smiled and looked the other way. That's how it feels sometimes. Lamentation gives us the space to say it. When sin happens in our midst, we have to work not to respond with defensiveness or by trying to distance ourselves from what happened, to look the other way. We can't skip our grief in all of its complications. This week, I posted a quote from Tish Harrison Warren's book, Prayer in the Night, on my Facebook page. You are yet again hearing from this book because I cannot recommend it more highly as we walked through these difficult places. Here's what she writes. I would ask people what they habitually go to when they feel anxious, lonely, or sad. Again and again, I saw how we habituate ourselves to lap up numbing distractions when we feel pain. Instead of sitting in the discomfort of vulnerability, we run to alcohol, work, social media, movies, entertainment, even political debate. None of these are bad things in themselves. These people I talk to aren't shooting heroin every time they've had a bad day. But nevertheless, they were saying to me in a hundred different ways that there is no time for grief. If we don't want a culture of outrage, we can't only be a reasoned culture or a distracted culture or a numbed or busy culture. We must learn to be a lamenting culture. She closes by saying, as a church, we must learn to slow down and let emptiness remain unfilled. We must make time for grief. Now, this doesn't mean that lament is the place where we stay. After we make space to grieve, eventually, we have to move into a space for repentance. When Josiah discovers the scroll of the law, which had been discarded for generations, he tore his garments. When David was confronted with his sin, he spent days in fasting and prayer. When the people of Nineveh in the book of Jonah were told that judgment was coming for them for their wickedness, the whole city put on sackcloth and ashes. And repentance isn't just for individuals, but for the community. We must engage in corporate repentance, especially as shock wears off and we learn more about the sin that happened in our midst. We, we have examples for this. Isaiah, when confronted with God's holiness, says, I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Daniel approaches God like this. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Ezra, who was the priest for the people of God when they had come back from exile, upon first hearing about the sin of the remnant that had returned, before he even learned all of its details, wrote this, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors to this day, we have been deep in guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been handed over to the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as is now the case. Why is it so important to corporately lament? Let me finally jump into this morning's texts. In Second Chronicles, we read as the chronicler, who was likely Ezra himself at this point, gave a brief summary of how the people of God went into exile. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord against his people became so great that there was no remedy. 
There are so many ways to scoff the prophets. You can do so by rejecting their message, by ignoring them, or by downplaying them. My friends, please do not miss this. The only way for us to be sure that a hard word is true or not is to sit with it, to self-examine. The only way to see where sin has gone, how deep the wound is, is to allow time to lament and reflect on it. Not every hard word is true. It is notable that our enemy is called the accuser. But that doesn't make every hard word false. It's so easy to jump over the tough parts, to want it all to be over, to want to simplify what happened, make it bite-sized and digestible so we can move on. But we have to allow our grief, our lament, and our corporate repentance to be as broad and as complex as what happened. They must be open-ended enough to make space for the incredible variety of responses that each of us are having to the last 13 months. It has to leave space for our emptiness to be unfilled, lest we fill it with something that numbs us but never heals us. I need to pause because I know that for some of you, what I'm saying sounds like I'm not tending to a wound but causing one. We have to be honest, this church has gone through a horrible year. We have been given so little information about what happened, which has been painful for everyone. This church has spent over a year in confusion, and as the year went on, the wounds festered. New wounds appeared. But if we don't put in the work to sit and listen and grieve and repent, whatever gets built in the months to come will be built on a foundation of sand. Corporate repentance happens because sin is never an isolated incident. It isn't self-flagellation. We're not trying to find ways to newly hate ourselves and experience shame. It isn't even meant to be communal scapegoating, looking for the one person to blame so the rest of us can feel justified. Now, it's true there's a need for justice, but that's out of our hands, and that's in the hands of our diocese. What corporate repentance will offer us is a way to hold up the complexities of sin in a community and lay it all out before God. I recognize, to be honest, that there might be some of you listening who are either newer to All Souls or less affected by the events of this last year who feel a little bit uncomfortable right now, given that this sermon is a deeply personal, somewhat in-house conversation. The thing is, we need you to join us in our lament. We need you to come alongside us and be present with us as we weep. We need the parts of the body who aren't stinging in pain right now to help us walk, to be united together with those who mourn. Now. So far, this sermon has been a bit of a downer. I recognize that, and I promised good news. The good news is that, as Paul says, we are dead in our trespasses, but it's only dead things that get resurrected. It's only when we lose our lives that we gain them, and when we pour ourselves out to God and lament and weep with those who weep and sit in our grief, God will give us the immeasurable riches of his grace. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. God doesn't just promise payout on the other side of death here. He offers abundant life now, a way of life for good works, grace to heal us, to once again breathe his spirit into dry bones and restore those things that are and have been good in our midst. Times of trial sting, but the, the refiner's fire can reveal and purify the gold underneath. 
Slowing down and creating space will give us opportunities to thank God for all the good he has done and continues to do in our community and to form us more and more into his likeness. Every time that the people of God go through the wilderness, God gives them something on the other side. After recounting the sins of Judah, our readings at the very end of the book of Chronicles, the whole book closes with this. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. As the prophets had promised, God directed Cyrus to return God's people from their exile. God may have sent them into exile, but his character is always to have mercy. And that's what we cling to when we enter into a season of lament, that we do so at the hands of a God and in the hands of a God who wants good for us and plans good for his people. Sorrow will not last forever, and grief does not get the last word. God's people do not forever stay in exile because God is merciful. It has been and probably will continue to be a very difficult season for all souls. It's been compounded by COVID and an investigation process that took far too long. During this past year, there has been real damage, real hurt in all directions. And we can't jump to fix it, but we can honestly grieve together. Let us pray for increased clarity so we can grieve together and enter into each other's grief, bearing each other's burdens. All of this, though, of course, is impossible. We can't hold our community together. We can't fix the divisions and the wounds that exist. But there is one last bit of good news. The disciples couldn't feed 5,000 people either. And yet, Jesus looks upon the crowd with compassion, meets their daily need, and does so with such extravagance that there is food left over. And in a few moments, we will come to the Eucharistic feast where God freely and abundantly bestows upon us extravagant grace. After feeding the 5,000, Jesus began to teach about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And in response to this hard and curious teaching, the crowd starts to abandon Jesus. And as they did, he asked his disciples if they were going to leave as well. Peter, still confused, yet to understand what Jesus meant about eating his flesh, professed what has been the most honest statement of faith in Scripture. Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We have no other hope but Jesus in this life and in the life to come. And the wounds here will not be healed by just coming together, but they can be healed when we come together around Christ. Any hope we have is fixed solely on him who was and is and is to come, and in his resurrection that we get to fully celebrate in three weeks, but we still get to celebrate each Sunday. In that resurrection, we know that death and sin have been defeated, that everything sad will come undone. I pray that in the weeks to come, we know God's presence. May he give us hope as we mourn now, knowing that sorrow lasts only for a night, even a long night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen.